hostage um, a judgment oracle against uh, Babylon. We'll complete that today, Lord willing. Um, the, the passage itself actually goes over into chapter 14. So at the end of chapter 13, we've been talking about the judgment that's coming on Babylon. And then the reason for the, the judgment is given in chapter 14 verses, um, if I can get that, there we go, is given in chapters 14 verses 1 and 2. So he says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. I said to you the last couple of times we've been together, when, in, for example, in Psalms, when you hear uh, or read a lament psalm, the psalm is pleading with God for help. Uh, the help may be in, for any number of different reasons, illness, sin. But when it's enemies, <clears throat> the, the typical order of petitions in the lament psalm uh, is um, destroy them, deliver me. And, well, uh, we tend to think of this in terms of personal enemies, and in some measure that's what's in view in the book of Psalms, but more often, um, and, and frankly, folks, uh, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced over the years that the book of Psalms is essentially a Davidic songbook, that the Psalms are written um, for and about David, and even the psalms that don't mention him are talking about the kingship of God, but the kingship of God functions in the world through David uh, and through his heirs. So the um, uh, any enemy of David is an enemy of God and of God's rule. Uh, so these are not um, patriotism. These are not either um, simple... A search for vengeance on the on on the part of one man for for enemies. It is talking about what the judgment is going to have to be, what's going to have to happen to deliver God's people in the world. And delivering God's people in the world means first the judgment of the wicked, and then the deliverance of the of the saved. So the um, uh, the passage here, fourteen one. The reason God is going finally to judge Babylon, and I want, I want to say that especially in light of what we said last time, Babylon was not finally uh, abandoned until around A.D. 200. <laughs> Isaiah is writing before 700 B.C. 900 years are going to elapse before Babylon finally is destroyed. Are you with me here? So why does chapter 13 assert that Babylon will be completely destroyed and, and, and be so um, devastated that it will be a wilderness and only wild animals, unclean animals, will frequent the place. And yet that didn't happen for 900 years. What's going on? In part, it's because Israel did not respond appropriately to the, um, the offer of salvation God is giving. Are, are you with me here? Yes or no? Um, I have asked people over the years, <clears throat> is it the case, is it really the case 
that Israel finally learned to abandon idolatry during the Babylonian captivity? And frequently the answer is yes, although I hear some of you saying no, and that's the way I would answer it. But they substituted for a gross form of anatomy, of anatomy, a gross, gross anatomy, where did that come from? Uh, they, they substituted for a grosser form of idolatry a far more subtle form of idolatry, and that is the idolatry of the law. The law is what is going to save us. God has given us the law as the means of our salvation. So uh, in that idolatry, they have really continued in their heart stiff-necked ways of, re- of responding to the Lord, and this remains to this day. And Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter, well, that would be in chapter 4, um, a veil lies on the reading of the law. In the heart, uh, 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 on the hearts of Israel, and it's not removed until it's removed in Christ. So, uh, so there is that uh, problem that Israel has had. Why then is this promise of Babylon's destruction so long delayed? Because the deliverance of Israel is so long delayed. Brothers and sisters, had God not delayed it, perhaps we wouldn't have even been born. And if we hadn't even been born, we couldn't have been saved. Are you with me here? So the delay of God's wrath means salvation. The other thing that the delay of God's wrath means that when wrath falls, it's, it's, it's much, much worse. It's much, much more severe. So uh, verses 1 and 2, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel again. He will settle them on their own land. Aren't they there now? No. More Jews live outside of Israel than live in Israel. More, live, more Jews live in New York City than live in Israel. And they went back, not in faith in God, not to serve God. They went back to get away from persecution. So the foreigner will join them and be united with the house of Jacob. And this is part of a large theme in the Old Testament where uh, Gentiles will come and, and seek the Lord through the testimony and life, the blessing of the lives of Israel. Well, nobody is seeking God because Israel in the land of Canaan is so blessed and serving God so fruitfully that people are seeking this God. So the nations will escort Israel and bring, bring it to its homeland. Then the house of Israel will possess them as male and female slaves in the Lord's land. Uh, they will make captives of their captors and will rule over their oppressors. Is then Israel's presence in the land today fulfillment of prophecy? I don't think so. It might be a, pre- a preparation for it. Okay, But Israel has been driven from the land before on many occasions, so they might be driven from the land once again. Your brother. We're so limited in our length of yeah. life. Yeah. God's from all eternity. Yes. So from our point of view, that was long delayed. That's right. From God's point of view, he was... That's right. And as we pointed out last week, a thousand years with the Lord is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. So it's only been three days since uh, Babylon or Israel 
was two and a half days since Israel was kicked out of the land. Fred? Well, read verses 1 and 2. Is this the case for Israel today? No. No. Then the answer is no. They're not back in fulfillment of prophecy. Um, The first people who went back, the Zionists, were many of them communists who set up communistic um, communes, not, they called them what? what, What's the word? Kibbutzim, yeah. Uh, Gatherings. Uh, they they set up a, a communist kibbutzim, social, very socialist. Most Jews in Israel are atheists. 70%, yeah. Oh, is it higher than 70%, Rick says? So, uh, no, this is not a fulfillment of prophecy. We're waiting for it. And perhaps we are seeing the beginning of it, but if it is the beginning, it's only the beginning. Much more has to happen. Verse 3 then. When Israel experiences this ultimate, this ultimate deliverance, as we said, if Israel, if anyone is going to experience an ultimate deliverance, the source of that deliverance must be an ultimate source. If, if I want Republican deliverance, then I can get it from the Republicans. If I want democratic deliverance, then I can get it from the Democrats. But if I want an ultimate deliverance, I have to get it from an ultimate source. The Republicans can't bring it. The Democrats can't bring it. The Communists can't bring it. Only a God who is ultimate can bring an ultimate deliverance. And when he brings that, here here is the, the astonishing thing. All of us were taught at some point in our growing up in, a, in the United States, when you win a game, you've got to practice good sportsmanship. Yes? Unless, it, unless it's the Longhorns. <laughs> and then you gloat. <laughs> Oklahoma got the last word last season. I just want to point that out to you. But, <laughs> but leaving that aside, we're taught to, to practice good sportsmanship, which means congratulate the other team. They did a good job. Yes? Are you with me here? Yes? This is not God's way. His enemies are not just sportsmen. His enemies are engaged in opposition to the source of life, health, hope, and blessing. So when he overcomes them, he ordains that his people sing a taunt song against them. And that's the rest of chapter 14. So verse 3. Is that 3? I can't tell you. Yes. When the Lord gives you rest from your pain, torment, and hard labor, uh, you were forced to do, you will sing this song of contempt against the king of Babylon and say, the rest of the chapter is a song of contempt against the king of Babylon. So, verse. Uh, uh, let's read verses uh, 4 down to verse 11. How the oppressor has quieted down. And it, I can't s- say this in quite a contemptuous way that it ought to be read. Um, 
how the how the oppressor has been quieted down how the raging has become quiet the lord has broken the staff of the wicked the scepter of the rulers it struck the peoples in anger and with unceasing blows it subdued the nations in rage with relentless persecution all the earth is calm and at rest finally the whole earth is it is calm and at rest People shout with a ringing cry. Even the cypresses and the cedars of Lebanon rejoice over you since you have been laid low. No woodcutter has come against us. And there, there are passages, not a large number of them, but there are passages in the prophets where, and, and indeed in non-biblical literature, there are passages where the kings of Mesopotamia were, were viewed as um, uh, woodsmen going into the woods and cutting down trees. The idea is that the trees represent the various nations. Even in, in, in Ezekiel 31, and I'll take you to that before we're done this morning. Um, in Ezekiel 31, it's, it's, the, it's the trees that are in the garden of God. So, so Lebanon is pre- presented as the garden of God, and all the trees are all the nations of the world. Are you with me here? And the, the, the imagery is you're, a, you're a, a woodsman going to the... To the, uh, to the great forest and cutting down trees, taking over kingships. So, verse uh, uh, 9. Uh, Sheol below is eager to greet your coming. He stirs up the spirits of the departed for you, all the rulers of the earth. He makes all the kings of the nations rise from their thrones. They all respond to you. Here is the, here is the king of Babylon who has been conquering all the nations and all those dead kings that he has killed, he's coming down to meet them. And, and, and again, they rise from their thrones. But not because they're showing respect to the king of Babylon. So they all respond to you saying, you too have become as weak as we are. They're taunting him too. You have become like us. Your splendor has been brought down to Sheol. Along with the music of your harps, maggots are spread out under you and worms cover you. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the taunt of the enemy of God. Are you with me here? This is not politics. This is not winning a game. This is solving the problems of the nations. Are you with me here? The problem of the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God must rule it shall rule, it does rule, but in his kingdom there is a great deal of rebellion at this moment, including on this continent. Um, Now, the rest of this chapter is open to a lot of of different interpretations. Let me just go on down here to to, uh, where where we've come. I have this summarized. When Israel is restored, they will sing a taunt song over fallen Babylon, and I include the basically the rest of the chapter in it. There are two passages at the end of the chapter that don't belong to this particular message, so we'll stop at verse 23. But verse 12 is, is regularly held to be a, uh, a statement of the fall of Satan. And so let's read it. And talk about it. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. 
you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the earth, of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol and unto the deepest regions of the pit. Um, he, uh, God then in the oracle follows up with some of the stronger evidence that this might be Satan. Those who see you will stare. I'm sorry, is this it? Um, I'm sorry, I've got a wrong, a, a different passage in mind on this. this. This is the passage, though, that's regularly held to be a statement of the fall of Satan. There's only one problem. The author thinks he's talking about Babylon and the king of Babylon. Well, isn't Satan ultimately the king of Babylon? No. Uh, he's a person who can die. Are you with me? Who had conquered the nations of Lebanon. Are you with me? And so uh, all, those, all those conquered kings taunt him when he comes to the, to the underworld. So what do we have here? In fact, in Hebrew, I don't have a break in the text at all. The text just continues. The king of Babylon is given a new title here. He is Halel ben Shahar, the shining one who is the son of the morning. Um, so what, what are we dealing with? Let me have you turn to one other passage, Ezekiel chapter 28. Another passage consistently associated with the fall of Satan. <clears throat> They changed the standards for employment at Dallas Seminary a number of years ago. (laughs) Uh, uh, We have to be able to sign the doctrinal statement in good faith and with hearty agreement. Those are not exactly the words, but that's pretty close to what they require of us. And I do sign that statement in good faith and in hearty agreement with everything in the doctrinal statement. And I have to believe in the fall of Satan because... Satan has to be a created being. Yes? Um, There is only one uncreated being. That's God. Yes? There is no other uncreated being. So if Satan is a created being, he has to be a creature of God. And if he's a creature of God, he was created good, and he must have fallen into sin. Does this make sense to you so far? But what we don't have to do anymore is to agree with all the verses that are given with, with the various statements because um, the exegetical guys at the seminary a number of years ago showed the administration. These just don't work. Let me explain why. In Ezekiel 30, uh, 28, I have a much stronger passage. If you'll look at the beginning of the chapter, the, uh, the beginning of my text reads, the word of the Lord came to, to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Lord says. Then in verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre, and say to him, this is what the Lord God says. So surely there's a difference between the ruler of Tyre and the king of Tyre. Yes? Some of you may have the King James, and it says the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre. Leader of Tyre. Uh, um, well, a prince is not a king, right? Hmm? Right? 
Now, I didn't understand your answer, so, <laughs> so um, except you can call a king my prince. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is the word that's translated ruler or prince or leader in verse one is a word that's applied. I'll show you this. It's applied to uh, in First Samuel nine sixteen ten one thirteen fourteen twenty five thirty. Second Samuel five two six twenty one seven eight Isaiah 50, uh, 30, uh, 55, 4. All of them are references to King Saul and David after they became kings. That's that first word. That first word is a word that appears to mean it's used in First Kings fourteen seven for Jeroboam, um, in Daniel nine twenty five for Messiah. Are you with me here? So. In the first place, the word can be used for a king. Number two, second place, the word means someone who has um, divine appointment. Okay? So why was Nebuchadnezzar on the throne in the days when he attacked the, well, he wasn't on the throne yet, but he was coming to the throne. Why was Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon in the days when Israel was, Judah was taken captive. Well, what, did, what did Moses, what did God tell Moses about the Pharaoh who was on the throne when God took Israel out of Egypt? I raised you up. He is there by God, by divine appointment to lead his nation in sin. Why? Because they were such a godly people and he didn't want them to be and he wanted them to be wicked and made them wicked? No, because they were a wicked people like nations on this continent. (laughs) They were a wicked people who must be given wicked leadership to expose all the wickedness that's already in their heart. Am I making sense to you? So why does God place the king of Tyre where he is? Because he makes outlandish claims. Look in the first part of the chapter. Just, just a few verses in the first part of the chapter. Verse uh, 2 continues. Son of man. Hmm? Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. Yeah, sorry, I didn't make that clear. Uh, Ezekiel 28, 2. Son of man, say to the, the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Lord God says, your heart is proud. You have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the sea. Yet you are a man and not a god. Or again, look down at verse uh, 6. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you regard your heart as that of a god. Verse 9. Will you still say, when judgment comes upon him, will you still say, I am a god? In the presence of those who kill you. Then I turn to verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament over the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord God says, king of Tyre, now gives him his, his political title as opposed to the, to the theological title he gets in verse 1. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, just in case you think that this is clearly a reference to Genesis 3, turn to chapter 31. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. 31, 8, and 9. Here's one of those forestry passages where the kings of Mesopotamia have been cutting down trees as a symbol of their, of their conquests over the nations. So verse 8, the cedars in God's garden could not rival it. The pine trees couldn't compare with its branches, nor could the plane trees match its uh, boughs. No tree in the Garden of Eden could compare with it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its many limbs, and all the trees of Eden, which were in God's garden, envied it. The passage is here about Egypt and Assyria. Were Egypt and Assyria present in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? No. So the point here is that we're talking in figurative terms about a man who's making outlandish claims about himself. Let me take you to a couple more quotations, and it's, this, these are kind of weird, so you have to hang on. Um, there are some arguments for this, that, he is, that this is a reference to Satan. One is the language concerning the, or describing the king of Babylon. But there are arguments against one is the context, and the other is the structure of the passage. But more importantly, EA 186 is um, a letter written by a king of Canaan, somebody, some little petty king in Canaan, writing back to Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, asking for various things. And in the, in the passage that I have quoted, to the king, my lord, my god, my son. Message of Maryazana, the ruler of Hasi, your servant, the dirt beneath your feet. I fall at the feet of, my, of the king, my lord, my god, my son. I counted it up in that letter 20 times. He says, my king, my god, my son. <laughs> uh, and in, these are the Elamarna letters. I, I, you, you may not have heard of these. Elamarna letters was a cache of, of um, uh, clay letters, clay tablet letters, written from kings in Canaan back to the pharaoh, asking for help um, on various grounds. And the pharaoh, this is the, these are the days, uh, these letters were written in the days of King, uh, King Tut's father. Um, so he, he had pretty much abandoned his Asian territories and was just trying to do things within his, within his own boundaries. Uh, so, so these are folks who are looking at a human king and calling him what? My son as well. He is the sun god. Uh, in Elamarna letter 195, say to the king, my lord, message of Biryazawa, your servant, the dirt at your feet, the ground you tread on, the chair you sit on, the footstool of your feet. I fall at the feet of the king, my lord, the son of the dawn. Yeah, but it's Pharaoh. Yeah. <laughs> my, my lord, the son of the dawn. Does that sound familiar? Um, over Limema, uh, it's, it's a, a word that probably means something like the peoples. 
My Lord is the sun in the sky, and like the coming forth of the sun in the sky, your servants await the coming forth of the words from the mouth of their Lord, etc. What a bunch of nonsense. Well, folks, the, reasons, the reason people use titles for kings, is that what, that's what the king wants. You're not just trying to butter him up. You're, you're trying to say, I'm your servant. You know, I, wanna, I want every benefit I can get from you. So they're calling him all the right things, what he wants. Folks, what I'm pointing out here is that it is customary in ancient monarchies to think of the king in some sense as belonging to the world, world of the gods. And since they belong to the world of the gods, then they ought to be given, be given divine titles and they make divine claims for themselves. Are you with me here? Yes or no? So think about for a moment with me then Ezekiel 28.1 The ruler of Tyre is divinely appointed to be judged. And he is the king of Tyre in verse whatever that is, 11. Um, and the language of the garden of God and and uh, walking around among the shining stones and so on, uh, is all part and parcel of how you address a king in the ancient Near East. Does this make sense to you? Let's go back to Isaiah then. So Jim, there's no possibility of dualism of any kind? Normally speaking, a text means what it says on its surface. Um, how many times does Satan show up in the Bible, in, in the Old Testament? Does the word Satan show up? Not even in Genesis. Not even in Genesis. It only occurs a few times. You know Job 1 and 2. Problem with that is it's not a name. In Hebrew, you don't... In Greek, if I use a proper name, I may well use a definite article with it because there are lots of people named Joshua, for example, so I'm talking about a particular Joshua, so I put a definite article with it to say this Joshua and not some other. Does that make sense to you? Never in Hebrew. And we have three to four times, four to five times as much Hebrew as we do uh, Greek in the, New Te- in the Bible. And in three to four times as much material, there's not a single time when a definite article is used with a personal name. In Job 1 and 2, though, it's always the adversary. It's never a name. It's always a, an, a title. Right, am I making sense to you? Now, if you speak Russian, definite articles come a little bit odd to you, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, we like them in English. So <laughs> the, the, the point is, then, that the word Satan occurs five or six times in the Old Testament with reference to a person but only three or four times with reference to, to, um, uh, to a proper name. That's not until Zechariah. Are you with me here? So, frankly, guys, if you look at Jewish thought, Satan plays almost no role. There, are, there, there is the Dibbuk, who's kind of a D-Y-B-B-U-K Dibbuk, who is a kind of adversary of God, but it's not exactly Satan. It's kind of a, a demonic character. There are lots of angels and demons that play in their theology, but Satan is not a big character. And sin is not that, especially Genesis 3, plays almost no role in their thought. Are you with me here? 
Genesis 3 plays such a, a large role for us. And we know from Revelation that Jesus thinks that the serpent in the garden is, is Satan. But he's not called that in the text. Are you with me here? He's not called that in Genesis chapter 3. So I, all I know, if all I had was Genesis chapter 3, the only thing I could think of is there's something dreadfully wrong with this serpent, but what it is is a serpent. So my favorite professor said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> so the serpent... Yeah, what is the serpent? The serpent's a serpent. Fork and tongue? Yes, because that's the person who's behind it, but the serpent is still an animal. Yeah. So my point is, just from the if all if I rejected the New Testament, I wouldn't know anything about Satan in Genesis three. Do you follow this? There's nothing in the Old Testament to tell me who that person is. Isn't that why Jesus opened the eyes on the road to Emmaus? In part, yeah. Yeah, but but there's more, much more going on there than that. I, let me just go back to Isaiah 14 then, and let's look at this Halel ben Shahar passage, shining one um, morning star. How you have fallen from the heavens. All your pretensions, king of Babylon, go for nothing. Everything you claimed, all this titulary that you imposed on your servants all those years are just so much words wasted in the air. Look at where you are now, how you have fallen from the heavens. (coughs) You destroyer of the nations, you have been cut down to the ground. Same, by the way, the claims for godhood were already made about the ruler of Tyre, of Tyre in the first part of the chapter. Yes? So we're not changing the referent here. We're still talking about the same person. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. That's almost a direct quotation from uh, a, a pagan piece of literature from a town called Ugarit on the shore of uh, the Mediterranean. I will ascend to the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. They will look closely at you. Is this the man? Is this the man who caused the earth to tremble? Who shook the kingdoms? Who turned the world into a wilderness? Who destroyed its cities? And would not release the prisoners to return home? All the kings of the nations lie in splendor, each in his own tomb. But you are thrown out without a grave, like a worthless branch, covered by those slain with the sword and dumped into a rocky pit like a trampled corpse. You will not join them in burial because you destroyed your land and slaughtered your own people. The offspring of evildoers will never be remembered. Prepare a place of slaughter for his sons because of the iniquity of their fathers. They will never rise up to possess a land or fill the surface of the earth with cities. I will rise up against them 
This is the declaration of the Lord, Lord of hosts. You, you have, perhaps some of you will have, says the Lord God of hosts. Declares. declares. This is an odd word in Hebrew. It, nobody really gets it. I don't, it, nobody has a clear understanding of what it is. But it's almost like God's signing. This is my signature. <laughs> uh, we got our wills um, authorized. They are now in force. And our living wills in force this week. We went down to the seminary and got a notary public to take care of all that. And it's all in force now. Um, my stepfather didn't have a will. My, my, my stepmother said, I could just spank him. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want her spanking me if I go before she does. So, uh, but we got that all done. But there are several places in that material where I had to put my my initials. Yes, and then every one of them has to have my handwriting on it. Yes, that's almost what this is doing. This is the signature of God. This is this is now sealed. It's good for all time. Uh, I will rise up against them. This is the may I paraphrase then, the signature of the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon her reputation. We've returned to Babylon, not to the heavenly realms. We're not talking about Satan and... Are you with me here? Um, I will cut off from Babylon her reputation, remnant, offspring, and posterity. This is the Lord's declaration, and he says it again. The Lord's signature is on this twice. I will make her a swampland and a region for screech owls. And I will swoop over her, sweep over her with a broom of destruction. This is a third signature is given. Here's an interesting thing, and we're going to anticipate something we'll say later. Turn to chapter 19. The hope of Babylon. There are three nations in history who have made it their, their um, decades-long mission to oppress Israel, um, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. We now know the fate of Babylon. Look in chapter 19, though. I'll I'll just start the passage and then go to the end of it in verse uh, 16. On that day, Egypt will be like like women. She will tremble with fear because of the threatening hand of the Lord of hosts when he raises raises it against her. The land of Judah will terrify Egypt whenever, sorry, Wasif, <laughs> will terrify Egypt, but, but there's good coming, as you probably know. Uh, uh, whenever Judah is mentioned, Egypt will tremble because of what the Lord of hosts has planned against it. Uh, verse, nine, uh, verse 19, on that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near her border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them. Who is they and them in that verse? Egypt. He will send them a savior and a leader, and he will rescue them. Now back all the way to the end. Verse uh, 26, 24, I'm sorry. On that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing within the land. Lord of hosts will bless them, saying, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance, are blessed. 
the good news is that two of the oppressing peoples are going to know the salvation of God. But one, Babylon, will not. Are you with me? So he preserves his justice. But what I've been seeing in the Old Testament more and more in recent years is God is way more merciful than sometimes I even want him to be. Thankfully, because I only want him to be merciful to me and the people I like. <laughs> but he, you know, the worst thing about God is he saves sinners. Wish he'd quit saving sinners, because that means the church is just full of all kinds of sinful people. It's just, I don't know, y'all are just sinners, and I, no wonder I can't put up with you. <laughs> but now I, on the other hand, am, yes, the, the point, of course, is. God is in the business of saving sinners. And sometimes he saves the worst of the lot. Now just to put the icing on the cake, let me tell you what the worst of the lot is. Self-righteous Saul of Tarsus. The chief of sinners. Are you with me here? So it's not so much idolatry that is the chief sin. That is, bowing down to sticks and rocks. It's trying to serve God in ways he never intended. And calling it righteousness. So Isaiah gives us hope for even the worst of sinners, even for young fellows that ram your car and don't want to listen. Let's close with prayer. Father, how do we even apply this? What do we, how are we to think? We are to think, surely we must think of you as a far more merciful God than perhaps we've thought of you before. How is it that as wicked as Assyria was, and they were wicked, how is it that as wicked as Egypt was, and they were wicked, yet you plan to save them? How is it that equally wicked Babylon you plan to judge. How do we understand you? We must, we, we must come to the point where we say, I really don't understand you, but I trust you, especially in the areas I don't understand. So, so lead us to trust you, Father, and to know that because you have begun, as, as, as Paul said in Philippians, because you have begun a good work in us, you will complete it unto the day of Jesus. And you may use some of us to bring some of the worst enemies of our Savior to salvation. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.